That verses that we just sang about or heard sung about, love never fails. Where is that in the Bible? Yeah, I thought someone would say in the Bible there, so that's why I, I came back with who knows where that is in the Bible. Thanks, thanks, Bob. <laughs> where is it in the Bible? First uh, Corinthians thir- uh, 13, verse what? Faith now, now abides, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. I was just wanting to check to make sure it wasn't two places. So it's not in 1 Corinthians 13, but that's a good one because 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter, right? You've got to know 1 Corinthians 13, yeah. So where is love never fails? Oh, love never is in there. Okay, all right, 13.8, all right, good. So I'm thinking, what am I thinking of in 1 John 4, where it says, oh, perfect love drives out fear. Okay, good, good, so we got that figured out. Excellent. I thought I knew where we were with that, so (laughs) excuse me. Hey, uh, this morning, and uh, you can turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 6.10, that's what we'll be teaching Today I don't I don't put the primary text up on the screen, but um, uh, so I, I just hope people will bring their Bibles and work through it with me because we teach it verse by verse. But we have some special guests here today, and they'll only be here uh, most likely one Sunday this summer. They are with a ministry called a Christian Ministry in the National Parks. All right, so uh, let's see. I'm not getting everything just right today. <laughs> so ICMNP, a Christian ministry in the national parks. And so from next Sunday on, next weekend on, they're going to be conducting church services in the national park. Is that cool? Huh? Yeah. So uh, I want us, as we prepare for this teaching today, to offer a blessing over these folks. Okay? So I want you to join me in doing that. And at the same time, we'll cast our cares on the Lord as well. Uh, with that group that's um, preparing to do this, would you please stand right now? All right, here they are. All right, could I get some folks that, yeah, give glory to God for them. Awesome. Thanks for what you guys are here for and what you plan to do, and God bless you in that. We're going to pray over you. I wonder if a few folks would mind gathering around them as close as you can just to place hands upon them or just reach in a hand and agree as we pray for these, these young people. All right, thank you so much. Would you just agree with me now? Lord, you're awesome, and we give glory to you that such a ministry exists as this, that these young people are not only given permission, but are invited to come and to be about you. We pray that this summer would exceed all of their expectations and that they would see fruit from their efforts, seeing people actually making decisions to come into the kingdom. We pray that they would have your eyes to see where you're working, their ears to, to, your ears to know your voice, and that everything they would do would be a result of what they're seeing you doing. Give them wisdom, protect them, Draw people, Lord, even as they're out meeting folks in the campgrounds. Draw them to these worship times. Be glorified this summer. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. And Lord, now as we prepare for this teaching time, uh, 
we just cast our cares upon you. We pray for Jean Denny, who's had some complications with her surgery this week. Bless her. Just wondering, for the rest of you, if you have just requests, needs, just at this time, why don't you cast your cares on the Lord? Thank you, Lord. Now speak to us through your word. We're listening. Amen. In Jesus' name. Thanks, you guys. God bless you. Pretty cool. Make sure you all greet them after church, all right, and spur them on, encourage them. All eyes on Jesus. That's really what we want to be about here at Summit Church. Now, as I was thinking about that and preparing, a statement came to my mind that concerns me. It's a statement that goes like this. It's one that you've heard, and I've even heard people say it's in the Bible. And that statement is this, that God will not give you more than you can handle. Okay, it's not in the scripture, it's not anywhere, and if it were a true statement, then we would be left without explanation as to why people take their lives, why people struggle with uh, chronic conditions of depression, okay? Uh, So this is a half-truth, and uh, we need to recognize that obviously at some point there are those in this world who are given more than they can handle, But for those who trust God, the scripture offers some pretty amazing promises. And I just want to give you two of those really quickly. One of the first scriptures I memorized as a young believer around 18 years of age was Psalm 46.1, where it says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Amen? Yeah. And I have to include verse 7 in there, just the first part of it. The Lord Almighty is with us. That sounds pretty good. Huh? What do you say? Yeah. And then another one. Philippians 4.13. It seems like I learned a song. Oh, yeah. I can do all things, all things, all things. Yeah. Through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians (laughs) 4.13. I don't know where I learned that one. Anyway, it says... Because Paul is dealing with some pretty significant struggles. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I just say that to tell you not to buy into these half-truths that the world throws at us because life will give you more than you can handle. And in those times that you're given more than you can handle, be reminded of how desperately you need God's help. Because the truth of the matter is, the whole truth is life will not give you more than you can handle together with God. Okay, you got the difference here? You need God's help. Life throws more at you than you can handle. So let's not credit God for the difficulties. Let's recognize we live in a fallen world. All eyes on Jesus. Your holiness, your perfection, your being prepared for the kingdom is about keeping your eyes on Jesus Christ. It's not rooted in your own determination. It's rooted in him being glorified. And that's really what it's all about. So in that, there's a very specific goal in today's teaching. And of course, every week I just remind you, God may want to speak some other truth into your life. That's okay. I'm just a vehicle. I'm a vessel here. Okay? A mouthpiece, and I want to disappear, and I want God to speak into your lives. But as I was studying, the goal that I recognized here goes like this. When you find yourself in hardship or difficulty, trust the sovereign Lord, and in that, look for some relatively good opportunity that he may be bringing your way. Okay, the problem here, and the idea is that we 
fail at times to trust God when we're going through difficulties. And in failing to trust God, we may be missing out on some really cool stuff that happens to be crossing right in front of us, but we can't see it because we're feeling sorry for ourselves. Uh, just this week, I was talking to a man who, uh, you know, all his life he's been a good soldier. He, he's been that rugged individualist, but right now he's dealing with some of the toughest battles of his life because getting older has a way of doing that to us. But in the midst of his struggles, he's finding some of the greatest opportunities he's ever had to be an ambassador for Jesus because all of these healthcare professionals, all of these uh, in-home care individuals that are coming his way have now become audience to the message of the coming kingdom of God. Is that awesome or what? In fact, I saw someone walk into church today that I know that man invited to church while he was lying in a hospital bed. See what I'm saying? Some tough times, but God doing some pretty cool stuff even in the midst of it. So I'm going to read the entire text to you right now, our, our teaching text for today, and then we're going to come back and we're going to break it down and see what we can learn from this. Okay, there are going to be some things in here that I'll just tell you, you won't like them, all right? But you just got to say, God, what do you want me to know in this? And be open to what he has for you this morning. So Ecclesiastes 6 verse 10. Whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. The more the words, the less the meaning, and how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life? During the few and meaningless days, they pass through like a shadow. We can tell them, or who can tell them, what will happen under the sun after they are gone. And so next he gives us a series of Proverbs that build on the whole idea of what we're seeing in this, this scripture. It's chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of the matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Anytime you see those who see the sun or under the sun, it's talking about those who live on planet earth. Verse 12, wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge, the advantage of wisdom is this, wisdom preserves those who have it. Verse 13, consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When good times come, be happy, but when times are bad, 
Consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. So at first glance, it, it appears that God isn't even mentioned till the very end of our text. But a closer look shows that that's not true. God is really glorified throughout the text. If you go to verse 10 where we started, it says, Whatever exists has already been named. To give something a name means to call it into existence. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, where we find the creation account, you will find that God calls light day. He calls the darkness night. He calls the expanse heaven. He calls the water sea and so forth and so on. And it's in this that he continues that same thought when he says, and, and what humanity is has been known, <clears throat> has been known, uh, and what a humanity is, has been known. <laughs> we'll end right there. All right. So God, everything that is, has been given a name. What humanity is, has been known. So man has also been given his name. The name God gave man was Adam. Adam means of the earth. Okay? Whatever is, has been named. Uh, what man is, has been known. Man is Adam. Man is of the earth. Man is mere dust. Okay, so now you keep that thought going and you keep reading and it says, no one can contend with someone who is stronger. If your Bible right there has a plural emphasis where it says no one can contend with those who are stronger, that's wrong. It's not written that way. It's written in a singular form. Everything that is has been named. What man is has already been known and no one can contend with the one who is stronger. In other words, Man cannot contend with the creator of the universe. That's what's going on here. Job tried to argue with God, and he end up, ended up repenting in dust and ashes. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 9, But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? See, that's the thrust of these first four verses. In fact, they lay the platform for everything that God has for us this morning. Who are you to shake your fist at God and question the way that he runs things? That's the question that's being asked right here. C.S. Lewis said it well. He said, to argue with God is to argue with the very power that makes it possible to argue in the first place. <laughs> it just doesn't work. Keep on reading, verse 11. The more the words, the less the meaning, and how does that profit anyone? So the more you argue with God, the less value your words have. The more foolish you are in that state. Keep on going, verse 12. For who knows what limited human being can possibly know what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun here on earth after they are gone? Who knows what is good for a person in this life? That's the key question. We have to ask that question when we go to God in prayer. Do we really know what's best for us in life? Our text begins this way and it ends this way because if you look at the very end, chapter 7, verse 14, it says no one can discover anything about their future. So no matter how hard we try, we can't know what life's going to bring our way. 
Now, I don't care for the old Doris Day song, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. I don't care for that philosophy to just kind of float along wherever the wind carries you. But the truth is, and don't get me wrong, you know, I love Doris Day, okay? And, and I'll listen to her sing that song all day. But there's a philosophy in that song that goes against my understanding of Scripture. It's not, baby, go where the wind takes you. Baby, surrender to the Holy Ghost, surrender to the living God, and let Him lead your path. Amen? Yeah, you don't have to just float along. Right. But you can know this. You can let this take you back to Ecclesiastes 3.11 where it says that God will make all things beautiful in His time. We don't have the whole picture. So the application here is, will you shake your fist at God questioning what he's doing, or will you trust him by surrendering your life into his hands and asking him to lead you? Because the truth is, God is the one who sees it all. Now, in the midst of your walk right now, uh, you may not be able to see that. You may not like the way it's playing out. Whatever you're going through, I understand that. But please hear this. You can trust God. You can trust Him. You can trust Him. Now we come to chapter 7. And I have to tell you, this was a challenge. But boy, I am glad I worked this scripture out because there's some great things in here. It's all building on the same idea, but it's built around these nine better than statements, okay? So there's all these comparisons going on, and I think you're going to find some really good nuggets in here. Chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. So you've got to combine those two statements together. Unfortunately, when the... uh, when the Bible is translated, we lose the poetic language. And there's actually a play on words going on here where that first statement actually says this, a good shem is better than a fine shemem. Sounds like the same word essentially, right? And, and he's doing that on purpose because of this very next statement. A good shem is better than a, a good shemem and the day of death is is better than the day of birth. It's easy for us to understand why a good name is better than fine perfume. It's easy for us to understand why a good Shem is better than a good Shemem. Uh, Because the truth is, uh, you can buy fine perfume, but you can't buy a good name. We choose a hole-in-the-wall restaurant over some fine dining facility because that hole-in-the-wall restaurant has a, a good name, right? Good reputation. That's right. But this whole idea of death being better than birth, we don't like that very well. What's going on here? Well, he's not suggesting that dying is better than giving birth, but what he is suggesting is he's pointing to two of the most significant events In the human experience, the day someone's born and they're given a name, and the day someone dies and their name is eulogized. And he's saying it's better to have a good eulogy because of your good name at your funeral than to be born into a house with a good name. Because you can be born with a good name and really mess it up. Right? But it's that eulogy. I got to tell you, folks, I mean, a dear friend of mine, at 
He had to chase his daughter out of grandma's funeral. This was a significant person to me. He's like, what's the matter? He said, Dad, whoever it is they're talking about in there, I don't know that person. Sad. That's what's going on. It's about your eulogy. So the application, it's better to die with a good name than to be born with one. It's about what are you doing with what you have. Going on in verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. So I think about our, our, our scripture last week where we talked about everything we have being a gift from God and that we should rejoice in what God has given us. And here it would almost seem that he's contradicting those very thoughts, but that's not the case because here the teacher is reminding us that none of us is going to live forever. And while for some a funeral says party hearty and have a good time because tomorrow you may die, for the wise person it says Am I using my days in the best possible way for the glory of God? That's why it's wise to go there. The Bible gives us this prayer in Psalm 90 when it says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. There are Eastern monasteries that will actually display the bones and the skulls of, of dead monks. You can, in some place, you can even go in and, t- and touch the bones. But what they are, they're serving us as reminders to say, hey, you know, your time is going to come. Uh, Carly, my eldest daughter, uh, we had the chance of going to Prague. Uh, we went to actually to the Czech Republic on a mission trip, and part of that was spending time in Prague. And during that time, we got to visit the, the catacombs, some of the catacombs that were there underneath the, the great cathedral right in the center of, of the city. And uh, so here we're, we're seeing all of these mummy, mummified uh, monks and so forth. And in the midst of that was a statement. I don't remember it exactly, but it went something like this. It said, as... You are, so we were, as we are, so you will be. You see what's going on here? It's just a reminder to us. Because we like to go to birthday parties and we like to go to celebrations, but birthday parties and celebrations may give us the impression that we're going to live forever. But when you go and you experience someone's death, it's there you're reminded, we've got just a few days and are we using our time well? Take it to heart, okay? So here we are, we're in the house of mourning, and we build on this in verse 3. Frustration, the better word would be sorrow there, is better than laughter. The word laughter, again, he's not trying to steal our joy, but the word can be reckless frivolity. Because now, in any reasons, a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of this reckless frivolity. How on earth can anybody say that a sad face is good for the heart? I mean, come on. We've heard that good cardiovascular exercise is good for the heart, right? Low cholesterol, less red meat. These things are good for the heart, but a sad face? Huh? Isn't that bad for the heart? 
Well, that's because we recognize the heart as being the largest muscle in our bodies, this blood-pumping organ that we rely on for our existence. But that's not the way they understood it at this time because the, the, the heart was the control center of the will. And it's like these times of sadness help you to realize what it is that you're doing with your will. And is your surrender, the surrender of your will, really living your life to the fullest? How human suffering has been viewed throughout history is a very interesting thing. The Greeks and the Romans despised it, seeing it as being a a curse from God. Eastern religions have had a tendency to want to rise above suffering through experiences like nirvana, ecstasy, or getting around some pretty good karma. But if you look at the Judeo-Christian heritage and the way that we've tended to look at it because of what the scriptures say to us is that times of suffering can actually be times of refining, times of molding where God wants to do a greater work in our lives. Listen to these words from James chapter 1. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Oh my goodness, does that sound like a contradiction or what, huh? Pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, why? Well, he says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. So in the midst of your struggles, if you lack wisdom, ask God, and he promises he'll give it. I think most of us here would agree that in our walk with God, that we grow more in the valley experiences than we do in the mountaintop experiences. We like the mountaintop experiences, but the growth seems to come in the valleys. You can look at the mountains around us, and you can see a perfect picture of that. I mean, above the timberline, there's just not a whole lot going on. You've got to get down into the valleys where the water's flowing. Huh? Yeah. And that's where, that's where the growth really comes. All the greatest stories ever written were birthed out of times of hardship and tragedy. So we don't avoid troubles and trials and struggles at all costs. Instead, we see those times of difficulty as opportunity for personal growth. Let's go on in our text. Verse 5. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. In other words, constructive criticism, someone who's trying to steer you the right way, is a whole lot better than flattery, okay? That's what it's talking about. And then he uses this analogy. He says, like the crackling of thorns under a pot, under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This, too, is meaningless. Have you ever thrown a a tumbleweed into the fire? Huh? I thought Arizona was the place of tumbleweeds because it's in all those Western movies, right? Growing up near the ghost town of old Tucson and, and Tombstone and those places, uh, tumbleweeds rolling through the streets. Well, there's nowhere that has better tumbleweeds than Western Kansas. Huh? <laughs> Blowing all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, but you throw them in the fire, man, they can sure flare up and make a lot of popping noise, but they don't provide a lot of substance. Right? And that's what's going on here. The laughter of fools is a lot of noise, but not a lot of substance. Going on, talking about money 
and the trap of even a wise person. It says extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. Verse 8, the end of the matter is better than its beginning. Did you hear that? The end of the matter is better than its beginning. We've already talked about that today, actually. Because it's better to die with a good eulogy than it is to be born with a good name. The end of the matter is better than its beginning. All is well that ends well. It never matters where you are in the race. The only thing that matters is that you finish well. (laughs) How many of us have seen and experience those who get that award at school or whatever where they, you know, they're honored as the person most likely to succeed and then somewhere along the way they become life's biggest failure. Why? Because they've chosen to rest on their laurels. I was voted most likely to, to succeed. What else do I need to do from here? The end of the matter is greater than its beginning. It's the story of the tortoise and the hare all over again. Friend, I When I went to study for the ministry, the greatest thing that could have ever happened was was done by our dean of students at that time. When he looked at us and he said, I don't know where all of you have come from. You may have been the biggest fool on earth. But right here today in this new place, nobody knows that. You have a clean slate, so it doesn't matter. Let's move on. (laughs) Because the end of the matter is better than its beginning. Yeah. And well, that's what this is talking about. Back to verse 8. And patience is better than pride. It's building off that same statement there, that, that it, uh, the, the end of the matter is better than its beginning because patience is in it for the long haul while pride likes these little bursts that make us feel good but really don't amount to a whole lot. Verse 9. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Should remind you of another verse where we are to be uh, slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry. We all could use some work there. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? Can you believe that's in there? I heard some of you laugh at that statement. Do not say the old days were better than these. That was written 3,000 years ago. What does that tell you? Come on. Doesn't that tell you that every generation has said the old days were better than these? Huh? That means things have gotten really bad. 3,000 years of worse. Can you imagine how much better they were back then? Huh? Huh? So our dilemma is that we're always looking for greener grass. And when the greener grass is in your past, there ain't no going back there. And what you have to work with is right now, so you can fret and you can moan and you can carry on, but it's not going to help you to end your race well. It's just going to add to all the negative stuff. Doesn't do, it's like, like the, the crackling of a tumbleweed in a fire. Doesn't do anybody any good. Makes a lot of noise, but not a lot of substance. And it, and it goes on with, with that statement. It says, for it is not wise to ask such questions. It doesn't contribute to anything. Wisdom is like an, in, or excuse me, wisdom like an inheritance 
is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But here's the advantage of wisdom. He says, wisdom preserves or gives life to those who have it. It's, it's interesting to me that even non-believers will recognize biblical principles and apply them to their lives. And they'll say, well, I'm not a Christian, but I see how the Bible makes a difference in my life. Wisdom enhances life. It's not talking about eternal life. It's talking about enhancing life in general. As you go through life on this earth, it's better to walk in wisdom than to walk in folly, as a general statement. If you want to know about eternal life, Jesus, in his prayer, said, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. If you want to know about eternal life, Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And I love his question. Do you believe this? Believe in Jesus. Walk in wisdom. Believe in Jesus. So now here we come to the conclusion, the summary of all of this, and it's an excellent one. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? Oh my goodness. Tornadoes coming through this week, eight more dead, mourning, destruction, despair, frustration, looking in the mirror and not liking something you see on your face. And you say, well, we've got plastic surgeons for that. But as a general rule of thumb, who can straighten what God has made crooked? And then he says, when times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God made, and I want to suggest right there, allowed for, okay, the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. Remember that old song? I don't know what holds the future. I just live from day to day. Remember that one? Yeah. It's kind of taken from this. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. None of us really has it. We don't have any control over what tomorrow may bring. Now, again, I stopped in the midst of this text and just pointed out that where it says God has made the one as well as the other, the good times and the bad times, because what is the one thing I say just about every Sunday around here? God is good. Wow, that was weak. God is good. And all the time. That's right. So God, by his very nature, is good. So why do we credit him for the bad stuff that happens in a fallen world? I don't think that's right. And, and what's happening in this text right here, remember from the beginning, I said you have to understand the whole book in order to understand a piece of it. And the author, the teacher, is writing here from a worldly perspective, from a horizontal plane where God is referred to as the high and mighty, but he's not referred to as the loving God who longs to have a relationship with his people. He's referred to as Elohim and not Jehovah or Yahweh. And from that perspective, to say, well, God made this happen is perfectly understandable, but why do we blame God for the bad stuff anyway? 
He's not the one who ate the fruit. He's the one who warned us not to eat the fruit. And in a fallen world, bad things happen to good people, but an honest look at that question says, well, who's good anyway? If God by his nature is good, he cannot contradict himself. But we have this situation. We have this place where we live, where difficult things happen. And the principle here applies beautifully. When things are good, enjoy them. But when things are bad, consider what God is doing in the midst of them. Consider what opportunities God may be bringing your way in the midst of them. For those who trust God, he promises he will redeem it all and make everything beautiful in its time. I just, you know, I think about Corey Tim Boom in a concentration camp, misery, horror, terrible things going on, but she was an ambassador for Jesus who had greater times than any of us could ever imagine in the midst of her struggle. And we just have to remember this. So let's not allow the tough stuff in life to keep us from the opportunities that God might bring our way. Run well, because a good Shem is better than a good Shemem. I have to give you this one more scripture because it just shows how beautifully God's plan works and how well it plays out in the end. This is from Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 31. What shall we say then in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all good things? All things. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So my friend, no matter what life may throw your way, and I'm, another hymn I'm reminded of right now, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. There's a verse in there about struggles, and I don't think I can pull it out. I'm trying as we're singing it. It's not there. I saw the thing flash, and I thought, did he just give me those words? <laughs> yeah. So, enjoy the good times. What? Weary ways or golden days. You know it. In that song, weary ways or golden days. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm looking for the first part of that verse. Yeah, anybody have it? I love the team effort. <laughs> yeah. Well, did you get the message? Did you hear it? Yeah. Enjoy the good days. In the bad days, consider what possible good God may be working out. Yeah, and how he might use you in the midst of it. Father, thank you for wisdom. Thank you for your word. God, forgive us that we allow hardships to stifle us and in the process to stifle you. We need your help, Lord. We can't do it without you. So even now, we're reminded that there's a better day coming. But in the meantime, you have not abandoned us as orphans. But you are present. You are an ever-present help available to all who will trust you and call on your name. Be glorified. Be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.